Would you join me in your Bibles tonight in Genesis chapter 34? By way of introduction for us tonight, as we prepare to work through a most grievous account recorded in Holy Scripture, I do so with gravity, with all seriousness. If you read Genesis chapter 34 with a tender heart, you will come away from this chapter broken. You will come away from this chapter and hopefully be able to see why some of the things are the way they are in the world around us. This is not a chapter to be glossed over, although, you know, up until recently, there weren't very many commentaries that even touched this chapter of Genesis. I do so as a pastor with uh, a congregation of mixed life stages. So we have we have a great task in front of us. Those who are mature in this room, I need to rely on you to do your homework. Okay. Those who are innocent in this room, we need to maintain their innocency. Because there's some difficult things that are covered in Genesis 34. And I don't want to be the one to have to uh, make it more difficult on parents when kids have to say, what does this mean, what does that mean? So, mom, dad, that's on you. We're not going into intimate detail over the accounts that are given. The scripture stands as it can be read. And I love the way that the King James Bible has put things in a way that we can read them and those who have ears to hear and are able can hear what the Spirit would say. As I mentioned, not very many commentaries until of recent note actually even dealt with this. I think it was uh, James Boyce in his commentary actually noted some of the commentaries of his time, uh, which he's a little bit before us, okay? Uh, but there have been good commentaries. If you want a good commentary on Genesis, just not uh, jot down maybe... Um, Creation and Blessing, Alan Ross has done a, a very good expositional pursuit of Genesis. There are plenty of commentaries out there that you can consult. Do I agree with all of them? Absolutely not. But uh, I, I do see where they're coming from. But back in, in Boyce's day, he mentioned, uh, you know, preachers like Alexander McLaren, who just skips over this entire chapter. Uh, the other one he mentioned was probably Gleanings in Genesis, I'm guessing, because that's A.W. That's a. Pink's uh, commentary on Genesis. He doesn't even touch chapter 34. He just says, I'm going to let you read it in the scriptures pretty much, and that's it. There was one, uh, Leopold, Leopold's commentary, he pointed out, actually dealt with the chapter, but then when it came to the homiletical section of the commentary, if you know Leopold's commentaries, he has a homiletical section, basically for preachers to say, okay, here's, here's some things for you to think about as you get ready to preach this. He said, uh, there's not really any homiletical value that you can find in this chapter. In other words, preachers, you're on your own. I don't have anything for you. You're going to have to do it with the Holy Spirit if you're going to come to this chapter. Now, I 
mentioned last time when we were looking at Jacob and Esau and their encounter that we were approaching Genesis 34. And so I told you, if we're going to deal with the whole counsel of God, we cannot skip over this. We have to consider what's here. So with that, I want you to draw your attention down to verse 27 and we'll begin. I won't take a lot of your time tonight, hopefully. Lord willing, we'll be able to look at what's here and glean some good insight and help us understand how to navigate some of the trials and tests of life and also what not to do so that we know better maybe of what to do should situations uh, come at us that we need God's help and grace. Verse 27, the reason I selected this verse for us is because it's really a summary of the entire chapter and the content here. So let's read it out loud together so that we get an idea of where we're going. Genesis 34 verse 27 The Bible says, The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. Lord, I pray that you would help us to approach your word with humility. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to glean what we need to out of this, to understand some things and apply them to where we live today. Certainly sin is wicked. And this this wicked, wicked world is grievous. And there are bad people that do bad things. There are good people that do bad things. And Lord, I just pray that you'll help us as your children to walk humbly with you, to love justice and to love and to seek mercy, Lord, that we might have have your grace and blessings upon us and be lights for you in a dark, dark place. I pray that you'll help us to uh, to emulate Christ and to put him before the world as Christians should. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. Now, this uh, sister is Dinah. So what we're looking at tonight is the defilement of Dinah. This is Jacob's daughter with Leah. Notice first off with me tonight, if you want the defilement of Leah's daughter. That's simply how I put it. We're just going to jump right into the uh, exposition of the scripture here. And if you look at verse number one, uh, really through verse number four, we see the violation of Dinah. Some things that we'll note here. Verse number one, notice with me that Dinah made an unchaperoned visit. Dinah, the daughter of Leah. If you read further down as we're we're going to, keep your eyes open and you'll note that she is called later on the damsel. The word here, damsel, would speak of a young lady. Dinah is a young lady at this point, but she is old enough, obviously, to go into town on her own. And she decides to go into town unchaperoned. Now let's back up a little bit. What is she doing in Shechem to begin with? Well, Jacob had set up a tent in Succoth. And uh, he had camped out there. Well, wasn't Jacob supposed to go to Bethel? Yes, he was. He stopped short of where he was supposed to be. So who do we blame? Do we blame Dinah? Do we blame Jacob? I think ultimately responsibility is on Jacob. Because he was not where God wanted him. And he put his family in danger. Now, there's another aspect we need to talk about. And it's really twofold, because uh, Dad had a responsibility to make sure that his daughter was being chaperoned 
And secondly, the daughter had a responsibility to make sure she was obeying her parent. We know we already know Jacob's family is completely dysfunctional. I mean, you're at this function junction here with these characters in the in, in the Old Testament. And these are the people that God will use to form the very nation of Israel. And how dysfunctional are they? Abraham, how dysfunctional was his family? Isaac, oh, the dysfunction that's there. Jacob, it's like dysfunction on steroids. Four, you know, women in the household, uh, 13 children, well, 12, <coughs> because uh, Rachel's going to die giving birth to Benjamin here. We'll, we'll see. But here, you know, there's some things that we need to note, aren't there? When I was going to, to college, you know, we always heard PCC had a reputation. Okay? It's, uh, and, and any other good Christian college that's got rules will probably come away with the same reputation. I mean, I would go home and I would talk to people that would ask me questions about the college, and they'd say things like, do they really have pink and blue sidewalks down there? <laughs> Evangelist Dave Young used to come and he'd do our opening revivals and he would make comments to the guys and the gals and he would remind us, you know, it's okay to be under the rules for a little while. You know, who cares if they make you wear skirts to your toenails, ladies? And who cares if you have to sleep in your ties, guys? You're only here for a little while. Okay, that'll register here. You know, when I was in PCC, it was pretty strict, you know, and we were even the lenient crowd back then um, because we actually had to wear a coat and tie to dinner still. You go down there now, they don't even have to do that. Yeah, as soon as she left, they stopped making all the ladies wear hose, you know, everywhere they went, like sleeping in their hose. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it was, so, the rules, okay. Yeah, we got a lot of flack because there were rules that this, the college imposed on the students. Where am I going with this? Just to have fun recalling all the rules that I had to live under for the time while I was there? <laughs> no. Did I have my time before the discipline committee? Yes. Thank you for your mercy and grace. I've made it. Uh, yeah. Discipline committee. The dean's office. Don't wind up in the dean's office. Okay. Uh, the, you know, not, not every student made it through unscathed. Some of them were sent home. I remember during my four years there, there were some that I just could not believe some of the stuff these students did. And they had to be expelled from Bible college. There were rules. Okay, now, I went, <coughs> I was older, I, I turned 23 um, in my sophomore year, I think, and, and uh, so 23, you know, I guess you, you're getting closer to maturity in their eyes, and they put you in Geritol Hall. If you want to live there, you can go over. Yeah, uh, so I was, I was the old guy there. I, I chose to, to room with my roommate. Why do I say that? Because the rules were different for 23-year-olds. Uh, a lot of times you'd have a job, you'd be off campus, and so lights out were, was a little different. You stayed up later and all that. But before then, you know, it was lights out uh, at 10.30 or 11 o'clock or whatever it was at night. I don't even remember now. I blocked that out of my memory. Uh, but So there, there are rules, right? But one of the rules was that if there was a young man and a young woman in a relationship, they were not allowed off campus or anywhere, uh, anywhere without a chaperone. That's a good rule. That was a great rule. Um, and, you know, some of the some of the most joyous times my wife and I recall together were times where we went out with a chaperone and got, you know, ice cream or something together. But we always had somebody there with us. 
What's Dinah doing down here? What is she doing outside of the protection of her family and home? So I'm just going to let that sit right there. That's, you got a job to do. Chaperone your children, especially your daughters. Chaperone them. There are wicked, wicked people that do wicked, wicked things, just like Shechem is going to do to Dinah. And for those who would say, who would be children, I would highly encourage you, the safest place you can be, if you have a Bible-centered home and you have a mom and dad that love the Lord, I'm conditioning with that, okay? But even then, the safest place you can be is right where God wants you. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Now, I don't know if there were any rules about, you know, Dinah's being able to go in, but look at verse number one. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob. Now, that's interesting why it would word it that way. Why isn't it Jacob's daughter, Dinah? Why does it have to be Leah's daughter? Well, we know the history, don't we? Part of me wonders if Jacob even cares. Really, I do. At least somebody in the family cared. But So she went out. Okay, this is this means she's going out on purpose. She's going down. Some have said you could translate it as to be seen. I'm just going to let the text uh, sit where it is because I think that's exactly what she was trying to do. She went out to see the daughters of the land. She wants to go see what this you know town Shechem is all about. We're going to go out on the town tonight. The ladies' night out, singular. The only lady going out. This is nuts. Why? Why would you? Why would you do this? So she does, and then. We notice not only Dinah's unchaperoned visit, we see Shechem's unrestrained violence. I would encourage you, if you can get your research done, dig a little bit on uh, on Near Eastern culture, ancient Near Eastern culture. And we look at this and we're like dumbfounded. Why is things are different in the Western world? than in the Eastern cultures. And there's documentation even back in this day. Okay, we're living in a day and time that is a long, long, long time ago, and things were done differently. We are about to escalate. Some have even called it, you know, a tribal war uh, between what's going on here. Shechem is not uh, is not a major, major city. You know, I just picked this here. That's not Shechem, obviously. You don't have skyscrapers in Shechem. Okay, that's more like Gotham, because I figured it would fit with our theme tonight. So... Shechem is, is a smaller town, but it's it's a region as well. And so she goes down here to see the daughters of the land. She wants to see what the ladies of Shechem are all, all about. And Shechem is the son of Hamor, the Hivite. He's the prince, so the son of the, the, the chief captain there. Okay, we're, we're getting into politics a little bit in, in small town, rural areas in this day and time. You need to understand the culture a little bit. Shechem, the son of Hamor. Remember, where is Jacob now? He's in Canaan. You need to connect this larger picture as well, because we read in the Bible that the reason God did not destroy the Canaanites before he did was because their sin was not yet full. You want a little taste, you want a little insight into why the Canaanites were so wicked. Shechem is your case study. 
No restraint. They have no qualms. Read through chapter 34. You will not see one iota of remorse or apology for anything that Shechem did here. Not one. It's like it didn't even bother them, the Shechemites. Wickedness. Just wicked. So Shechem has this unrestrained violence. And I, I chose my words carefully with that. Shechem's unrestrained violence. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, note this, maybe you want to underline it, look at the escalation of the language. The, the authorized version just brings this out. I think you can't read it without seeing the escalation. He saw her, he took her, he lay with her and defiled her. It all started where? It all started with a look. Now, you want some parallel passages? An interesting study to go along with this. Uh, study what happened with the tribe of Benjamin. Study what happened in the book of Judges with, uh, with, the, with the other gruesome account that's there and the civil war that broke out between Benjamin and the rest of Israel because of, of the, the body parts being mailed to every, every end of the country. You remember which story I'm talking about? Parallel this. Look at the wording. You're going to have some of the same verbs that are going to tie them together, not only here, but also with the situation with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. Same words. It says, he saw her. It didn't stop there. He looked and he took. What you let in here is going to affect you. And it will result in action if it's unbridled, if it's unrestrained. He couldn't help me. He, just, he saw her, he took her, he lay with her, he defiled her. Now, this is violent. Do a word study on it. Look it up. We're not talking about... I don't... I'm sorry. There have been other commentators that have read this as possibly being consensual. I don't see it. I, I just don't see it. So, let's put it in perspective. Unfortunately, pastors have to deal with messy situations sometimes. And you've heard the horror reports, and I've heard the horror reports. Um, even churches when I was growing up, we'd hear the horror reports, right? Uh, we have in our country what's called an age of consent, right? Adults in here understand what I'm talking about. So... You read in the headlines, it busts all over over mainstream media. Anytime, oh, like this last bout with all the coaches. I mean, this stuff makes me want to vomit. You have these things. When you step over that line, okay, in this day and time, I want you to look at this as a statutory situation because I think it fits the description. Shechem has transgressed in a huge way. He has stepped over this statutory limitation line. So uh, we're going to bring up a question whether it's consensual or not. It doesn't even enter into my into my uh, reasoning here because Dinah's not even of the age, in my opinion, of reading this because in this day you had dad with dad working these arranged marriages out anyway. She doesn't have any, any say in this. If you're reading the law, there are specific... Uh, circumstances where it deals with instances like this in Deuteronomy and uh, in Numbers when things like this occur 
the law had had means to be able to bring remediation. And it depended on whether she was in the city or whether she was in, in the countryside. If she was in the city and this happened to her, then she would be put to death along with the man because she didn't cry out for help when there, she was within earshot. That, that's how the law puts it. If she's in the countryside, if she's in the field, then it wouldn't matter if she cried nobody hear her anyway. She's let off the hook on that, but the man's still put to death. I mean, this is a death penalty sentence, even in the law of Moses in this day and time. What Shechem did is horrendous. And then he tries to backpedal and fix it. Verse 3 and 4. Okay, so we see the defilement of Dinah. What's she doing down there? She's unchaperoned, and Shechem can't restrain himself, and he goes after her, and with violence, he he defiles her, and then he... I mean, look at the wording. You parallel it, and it's and it's just... What? Verse 3. His soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. I think you got it backwards, Shechem, because Genesis chapter 2 tells us, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. No, you did it on the wrong side of the vow. You did it on the wrong side of... This thing was consummated long before it should have ever been anything at all. And so now, you know, but this, this is amazing. He clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Oh, now she's the daughter of Jacob. She's the daughter of Leah before. Now she is the daughter of Jacob because dad's got to get involved. Okay, And he loved the damsel. There's the word I'm talking about. She is, she's a young gal. She's a young lady here. And then he spake kindly unto the damsel. Those of you who have any common sense about you at all, if they were to hitch up and get married, how happily ever after do you really think they're going to be able to live with his temperament the way it is? Shechem spake unto his father, saying, note his words because they sound a lot like Samson's, by the way. Remember Samson <laughs> and his account? I want that woman. Dad, give me that woman. Uh, okay, we're reading the scripture here. Get me this damsel to wife. He goes to Dad and says, work it out. Dad, we got to make a deal here with Jacob, and I want you to get, get her for me. I want to marry her. If he would have done it the right way to begin with, I still don't know that they would have agreed to it because... Now you have intermarriage with the Canaanites happening. And that's prohibited later on for them to do. I just simply put here, there's no right way to do wrong. There is no right way. It's wrong no matter how you cut it. Now, not only the violation of Dinah, notice with me in verses 5 through 12, the negotiation for Dinah. I'll tell you, Dinah... I feel so bad for her in this, but she's a, the only reason it's recorded for her is because she has a part in in the beginning of this nation. How many other women uh, were not even mentioned, or how many other things happened that aren't even recorded that we don't even know about? Dinah is the one. But look, I mean, how bad is this? Negotiation for Dinah. So she's been violated. Now we got to work things out. 
hey, this isn't really any any too different than a lot of things that happen today. People get in a mess. You know, you got a young man and a young woman that mess up, and then uh, mom and dad and, and and whoever else is involved, uh, they they step in, they try to fix it. Maybe even there's legal ramifications, and so we've got to sit down with lawyers and start negotiations. And try to fix this and fix that and work together on it's better not even to go down that road to begin with. That's why the Bible says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So the negotiations begin. I want you to note Jacob's silent delay, verse number five. Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled Dinah his daughter. He gets the report. Now, there's a couple of ways you can take this. It says, Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. I don't want to put you know words into Jacob's mouth or, or make an assumption that maybe wouldn't be founded. Two sides of this. It can only go one of two ways. Either he doesn't care about her, which is very possible. Okay, I mean, she is the daughter of the unloved wife. So maybe it's really easy for it. Like he would never come out probably and say, "I don't care for her." But, but how easy would it be for him to just kind of brush this one under the rug? You know. Now, if it was, if it was Rachel's daughter. Maybe there would have been a different reaction, but it's not, and it's not stated, so I, can't, I, can't, I can only just surmise on that. Are you with me? Now, the other thing is, the other way you can take this is maybe we're seeing a little bit more spiritual maturity from Jacob that we haven't noted in his life as up to this point. Maybe. Why do I say that? Because before, uh, the same violent tendencies we're going to see in his sons resided in Jacob. He was prone to take matters into his own hand. He was prone to fly off the handle and lose his temper. But now it says, very specifically, it, it says in here, he held his peace. Maybe this was the harder thing to do. Maybe he was uh, maintaining an element of temperament where his sons are not mature enough to do that. I don't know how you want to take that. I'm not going to decide for you. Was it... Was he silent because Dinah didn't really mean that much to him and she's the daughter of Leah? Or was he silent because he's trying to maintain composure and wants to let God handle this rather than him interjecting prematurely and making things worse? Maybe there's some spiritual maturity on his part. Maybe. I do want you to notice... That sin brings grief and anger. Verse 7, we'll come back to verse 6. But verse 7, it says, And the sons of Jacob came out to the field when they heard it. How did they hear about it? it the text doesn't say that Jacob told them. But they heard it through the grapevine. And the men were grieved. And they were very wroth. Among these men, you're going to have men who are full-blooded brother to Dinah. Simeon and Levi, in particular, Reuben and Judah, they're full brothers. 
I wonder if some of their hurt isn't because of how dad is not really doing anything when they feel like you should. I wonder if they're not already thinking they need to take matters into their own hands because, well, you know, our mother is the lesser loved anyway. So if we're going to get something done, we're going to have to do it in our own time. And then it says they were grieved. Can I tell you, every time you sin, it hurts. Every time you sin, it hurts. Every time you sin, it hurts. Say that with me. Every time you sin, it hurts. Every time. There's never a time when you sin that it will not hurt somewhere, some way. Never. You see the hurt. What Shechem did was sin. It was transgression. It was wrong it, in every way, shape, and form. And look, Shechem's not the one grieving over this. Mm -mm. Not at all. The brothers are the ones that are hurt. And if you think this was only in Jacob's day here, you're, you're foolish to think that. There are people right now that are hurting for their brother or sister the same way that these brothers are hurting for Dinah. The same way. Why? Because he had wrought folly. Their wrath, notice their anger, is going to lead them to do some things that are not, are not condoned. He had wrought folly. Shechem had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter. The word folly is the other word. Humbled, or he lay with her, defiled her. That word coupled with this word, folly, are the two words that connect each three of the accounts that I told you, the one in Judges and in David's daughter. Same words. Wrought folly. And especially in Judges. Wrought folly in Israel. Wrought folly in Israel. Notice it's not just an individual being talked about as Israel here. It's now a national problem. It is a community problem. Can we grieve over sin? Can we see? Can we see the consequences of sin? I think this is so lacking in our pulpits across America today because we don't want to focus on this as preachers. And shame on us. Shame on us for not dealing with this and, and helping people understand that the Bible is very clear to discuss the consequences of sin. When we go away from God's standard and we go away from God's counsel and His Word, there are consequences. Can we grieve over sin? Even when it's sin that's happened to someone else, maybe that we love or connected to, does it bother us? I'm afraid many times it does not bother us the way that it should. I wept. I wept over this chapter. says, look, I mean right here, underline this phrase, which thing ought not to be done. Let's just let that speak for itself right there. You ought not do it. Then don't. You ought not do it. Then don't. Just don't do it. And when it is done, and it's beyond our control, we need to learn how to allow God to use those circumstances and make sure that what we do in making those situations right, we have God's condoning on that. 
because Simeon and Levi are not going to have God's okay to move forward. And when they do, there's going to be consequences for them reacting in their anger. But can we grieve over sin? Can we can we get angry at sin? You know, the Bible says be angry and sin not. How are you going to do that? Well, be angry at sin. When you see it the way it is, the way that God sees it, then you're going to get tired of the damage and the destruction and the death it's bringing in your life, and you'll actually do something about the sin that you're allowing and tolerating and, and turning a deaf ear to. Now we come back to verse 6 and look at that with verses 8 through 10, and we look at Hamer's politics, and I say that this is Hamor's politics, part number one. You want to talk about a politician, Hamor is a politician. He knows how to work both sides to try to get what he wants. And you show me a true politician, and I'll show you somebody who will work you and the other side to get exactly what they want. That's Hamor. He wants to get this girl for his son, so he's going to work a deal with Jacob and uh, his sons, and then he's going to take that deal with, uh, with some compromise thrown in there. He's going to take that back to his people, and he's going to say, if we do this, then guess what? We're all going to win in the end. I mean, you talk about a politician. I mean, think of, you speak them with forked tongue. Yes, I just used politician and speaking with forked tongue in the same sentence. We need statesmen and stateswomen, don't we? We don't need more politicians in America. We need some true statesmen and stateswomen. People that will stand up for the people of the state they represent and speak for the people. And especially taking up the cause of the poor and the fatherless and the widow. That's who God watches out for. The scriptures. Hamor's politics, part number one. Verse number six. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. Hey, pops, sit down. It's time to have a talk. Guess what? Guess what my son and your daughter have been up to? Hmm. Verse 8, Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. Oh, he's head over heels with her. soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you, give her him to wife. Make ye marriages with us. Give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. Ye shall dwell with us. The land shall be before you. Note the land. He says, the land shall be before you here. Pay attention to that. Okay? Because you need to read the details of what he's going to tell his own people later. It's just, it'll be before you, the land, all this land, and, and you'll dwell and you'll trade therein and get your possessions. And, hey, this will work out, Jacob. We can make this work. You just let Dinah marry Shechem, and then you know we'll do this, this big relationship thing, and we'll just all live as one big happy family here. Now Shechem's going to put his two cents in for it and make his plea for Dinah. Verse 11. Shechem's plea for Dinah. Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren. So everybody's there. Dad's there. All the brothers are there. Let me find grace in your eyes. Well, you know, he messed up. Now he's in love with her and he's willing to do anything 
to be able to get her to be his wife. He says, let me find grace in your eyes. Uh, what, and, and what shall you say unto me? I will give. Right here, I want you to go and read verse 31. And look right this way once you've read verse 31. You understand how the brothers are going to take this? Okay, we move on then. Shechem making a plea. He says, what do I got to pay? What's the price? What's what's the cost? How, how much you want? Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give the damsel, give me the damsel to wife. I'll buy her from you. Notice now things begin to turn, and we see the deception by Jacob's sons. So we've seen the defilement of Dinah. What a tragic account. Notice now it only gets worse from here. It doesn't get better. This is not a happy ending story. The deception by Jacob's sons. So they make a proposal. Jacob's sons' proposal, verse 13. Let's just read this. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, underline the word, deceitfully. Same word that is used to describe Jacob and Laban earlier on in other verses. Same word. So they had a really good teacher, didn't they? Not only in dear old dad, but good old uncle Laban taught them exactly how to do what they're doing right now. Be sure your sin will find you out. They answered deceitfully and said, well, because he had defiled Dinah their sister, they said unto him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised. For that were a reproach unto us. But in this we'll consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters unto us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not hearken to us, to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. You do this or we're out of here. <laughs> I think it was Dave Vernon McGee. He, he made an application of this and he talked about people that, you know, profess Christ. He was talking about a, a situation one time he was asked to do a marriage. And I can relate to this as a pastor who's had to do marriage, marriage counseling and you never want people to leave your counseling sessions upset with you, but there are times when it happens because you have to stay true to Scripture, okay? If they're not willing to do some certain things in the premarital counseling, then I'm not going to do the ceremony. You go find the justice of the peace because you're asking for something that I can't do. So Jay Bird McGee tells about this couple that came, and you know she was head over heels for him, and he was head over heels for her, and, and uh, she was saved, and he wasn't, and he began to counsel with them, and found out that the young man wasn't saved and, and uh, you know, said that I won't do the, the ceremony unless you're saved and so the man got saved. But, you know, after he prayed, <laughs> Dr. McKee looked at him and said, now son, what did you just do? Or something along those lines. 
and kind of fucked around and couldn't really tell him what he did. So he looked at the, the young lady and said, I'm not going to do this wedding because I don't believe he's really saved. And they left mad. And guess what? They went down the road and they found another preacher to do the ceremony. They got married. And she tried to get him to go to church. Wouldn't go to church. Wouldn't have anything to do with it. Finally, you know, through the end of it, he just came out and blatantly said, look, stop. I'm not a Christian. That was the application he made off of the circumcision that they're trying to put. You see, why would he make that kind of application? Because here you've got the sign of the covenant of Israel. And the sons of Jacob are trying to use that for their own manipulative, deceptive purposes. And we wonder how many false professions there are in our churches today. How many people, you know, are willing, just because they want something that they can get out of following Jesus, they say, I'll get saved, and then they, you know, it's all just, all just a mouth, and there's no action to it, because it's not really in their heart. These people don't care about Jehovah. These people don't care one bit about the God of Abraham. And here they're going to get circumcised and become like the Israelites? No, so you see how deceptive this is. Because... The sons of Jacob know, absolutely, before they even do this, it's a setup. Because they know all about circumcision. They know exactly when to drop the end. They're going to get them all. They're going to get them all. There's vengeance at work. Notice, now we move into, uh, after their proposal, <coughs> Amor's politics, dun, 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 part two. Remember, he's a politician. So let's read his, his, uh, his working everything out here. Verse 18, And their words pleased Hamor. Yeah, we can do that. Shechem, Hamor's son. Yeah, hey, let's do it. And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. I mean, I really think he did have something going for him. He just did it the wrong way because they're Canaanites, pagans. Anytime you get mixed up with pagans, you can expect to be defiled. Keep that in mind, because we have all these kind of Christians today that want to mix paganism in with Christianity, and they're trying to justify all this stuff. There will be defilement. There will be. And I know, I just opened a whole can of worms from tattoos to cremation. Okay, so take that. Amor's a politician. So uh, he... He has to delight Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor... And Shechem and his son, they came into the gate of their city. This is where business would be done in that day, okay? The gate of the city, they get everybody around, communed with the men of their city, saying, These men, excuse me, these men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Now, if you read his list here, I would tell you go back and compare. What did he leave out? Uh, make marriages with us, give your daughters unto us, take our daughters unto you. Dwell with us, the land shall be before you. Down here, you know, he's telling the people of Shechem, they're peaceful with us, <coughs> let them dwell in the land trade therein, for the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters, let us give them our daughters, only herein will the men consent unto us. So you see, he's playing both sides here. 
He just simply tells his people the land is big enough for them. It's big enough for all of us. But that's not what he told them. He said the land's before, any, you know, whatever you want. All the land here. And then he goes back to them and he says, it's big enough, they'll find a place to... You see how sly? Maybe it's just me. He says, here's, here's what we got to do, though. Herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Hey, 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 don't think about that too long. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? We're going to swallow them up. They're just going to become Shechemites with us. Hey, you guys are going to win by this. This is a good deal for you. What a politician. Only let us consent unto them. They will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem, his son, hearkened all that went out of the gate of the sea. I take this as everybody who's old enough to be able to do that. Okay. And every male was circumcised all that went out of the gate of his sea. Notice thirdly, the retribution of Dinah's brothers. You talk about vengeance. Revenge is coming. The avenger is on the way. Notice Simeon and Levi take this as an opportunity to ambush the Shechemites. Not only the Shechemites, Shechem and Hamor. So the king, the prince, and all the people of the town, everybody, not only do they do that, they rescue Dinah or uh, retrieve her, however you want to look at it. I thought rescue was more, you know. Verse 25, and it came to pass on the third day. Why the third day? Because it tells you they're sore. And, uh, and it's been documented that fevers usually set in on, on this day. I don't know that you know, by experience, but that's what I've read and that's what has been documented. So it says they were sore that the two sons of Jacob, now they're named. Who is this? Simeon and Levi. Who are the four sons of Leah? Again, we mentioned Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So these are two of the full brothers who are going to do something about what happened to their sister. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly. And what did they do? Every, every last man that was there mowed him down. All because one man filed their daughter. And they took it out on a whole town. Everybody paid. Everybody paid. It's going to come back to haunt them. So they did this with the edge of the sword. And then they took Dinah. No, Dinah's been with Shechem this whole time. He, she has to be because why else is she here? They had to take her out of his house. So here they come. Mow everybody, every man down, and they get Dinah out of Shechem's house, and they went out. Now, went out corresponds to he took, right? So he saw, he took, he lay, he defiled. Here, you've got the parallel with they went, they took. No, they, they went out. So as he went, they went. The brothers then, beyond Sibian and Levi, it's not just them now. They go and they ransack the whole place. 
plunder and pillage the whole town. Women, children, cattle, livestock, everything. Booty, spoil, plunder. They took it all. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. Nobody's going to do that and get away with it. So who is the law here? Who's taking law into their own hands? Who's taking this further than it ever needs to go? Without, without due ordinance from God. Okay, let, let, let's think about that. Okay, we, we need to address that. Before, well, yeah, let's, let's think that through. Let me ask you this. What's different between what Simeon and Levi did and what Phineas did in Numbers 24 and 25? Remember that story? What's, what's different? I mean, that was righteous indignation too, right? This is righteous. This is not righteous. This is indignation, but this is no, by no means righteous. Why was Phineas, though, blessed and, and promised you know, an inheritance for executing justice and righteousness? When Simeon and Levi, look at Genesis, uh, where is Jacob's prophecy? It's 40. Is it 49? Yeah, here you go. Uh, 49. Simeon and Levi, verse 5. Our brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor be not thou united. For in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Verse 7, read it out loud. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. Notice what's going to happen. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Why were they scattered and Phineas was promised an inheritance? What's the difference? Why did Moses stand up one day and say, we've got to go in and take care of all of the Amorites? What made what he did different than Simeon? Can I say this? He had the ordinance of God behind him to do it. That's what made the difference. Simeon and Levi are doing this outside of the purview of God's justice. And they took matter into their own hands. It's no different than somebody today circumventing the justice system and taking matters into their own hands and executing their own vengeance. Are you with me? They should have done it with God's approval, and they didn't. Was it right for Shechem to do? No, absolutely not. If God doesn't condone it, neither do we. But was what they did right? No, it was not, because they were not the ministers of God's justice. Not in this situation, not yet. So the brothers are plundering, they're, they're pillaging. Notice, it didn't stop at the men. They took all their wealth, Okay, uh, the, everything that was in the field, everything that's in the city, everything. <coughs> the wealth, all their little ones, the children, they took them all. The wives, they took them all. They spoiled even all that was in the house. They left no stone unturned. They just went through and ransacked the whole place. And they felt justified in doing it. Jacob's got a response. I want you to see it because it's revealing, to say the least. Look at verse 30 and 31, and we see Jacob's response. He gives a rebuke. Okay, well, let's, let's at least give him credit for that. Doesn't he rebuke them? He tells them this is wrong. You shouldn't do this, but why? 
What is he concerned about? Is it because he's so hurt over what happened to Dinah? Oh, we, we would like to think that, wouldn't we? Soiling his own reputation. You guys are making me to stink before the inhabitants of the land. You're dragging our good name through the mud. Who cares what happened to our sister, Dad? Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed in my house. So now, where he was so afraid of Laban before, and they worked that out and cut this little treaty between them, and then where he was so afraid of Esau in chapter 33, now all that fear is put to the Shechemites. Now the people in the land, they're going to kill me. See how the story continues to unfold that. I mean, every step he takes, the covenant promise is in jeopardy unless God steps in. Notice their reply. This is how the chapter ends. Who gets the final word? Does dear old dad get the final word in this? I think they put him to silence with their statement. They said, should he deal with our sisters with an army? Dad, you expect us to stand by and do nothing because you're doing nothing? When I got my first Bible that was given to me, uh, there's a phrase that my pastor wrote in there. He wrote these words. And as we think about Genesis 34, I want them to resonate with you and bring in your ears too. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intend to stay. And it will cost you more than you'd ever be willing to pay. Genesis 34, in a nutshell. Sin and its consequences are real. Let me close by giving you six quick observations of practical lessons that we can take away from this. Number one, I would say partial obedience is disobedience. Jacob should have been in Bethel, and this would have never happened to Dinah. Dad, you should have been where God wanted you. <coughs> it put his family in danger because they were out from underneath the protecting hand of God. Let that sink in. The safest place for you to be is right in the center of God's will. God's grace, God's will will never guide you where His grace cannot keep you. That's on the sail in that boat that uh, is in my office next door. Think about that. Secondly, parents, chaperone your children. Children, obey your parents and the word for this is right. Third observation. Sin affects not only one individual, but an entire community and an entire family. It started with a look, and now you have a whole community of people. Two towns, two, two families that are destroyed and unless God steps in what about Shechem? Hey, sin affects not only the individual but the entire community you look at what happened last week and we're still talking about heroes from what happened last week down in Highlands Ranch you tell me it was just two individuals that were impacted through that? No it's an entire state and nation, and maybe even around the world, that is hearing 
the repercussions of wickedness because evil in the heart. Fourthly, leaders, and, and this, this was to me, okay, just as much as anybody else, leaders, you need to nip it in the bud. Don't hesitate. Don't remain silent. Don't wait for somebody else to do what you should have done if you really cared. It's hard, but when it calls for action, you are much better off doing the hard thing and nipping this thing in the bud before it goes any further and hurts anybody else. Learn that from Jacob. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Don't wait for others to do something that you are responsible to care about. Leaders, nip it in the bud. Fifthly, God's people are some of the biggest sinners you are ever going to meet. It's never right to do wrong in an attempt to make something right. God's people. This is going to be the nation of Israel. How many people have been hurt by Christians who sin? God's people are among some of the worst sinners you will ever meet. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Thank God for the grace of God. But let's remember, there's a better way. There's a better way. And lastly, I would leave you with at least this encouraging note. God never gives up on us. Despite who we are. We're about to come into chapter 35. Hallelujah, chapter 34 is in the books. I've preached through this. I don't know if I'll ever preach through chapter 34 again in my entire life. Boy, what have we learned here? What will we have missed if we just brushed it over and glossed over it? What will we have not learned and grown by? We're coming to chapter 35 and Jacob's headed to Bethel. He's going to get right with God and God's going to renew covenant promises. He's going to go out and become a mighty nation for God and take the gospel and the glory of God. The whole world's going to come and see the glory of God in Israel. Because God's not done with Jacob, despite of who he is, in spite of what his sons did here. There's consequences, but I'm thankful God never gives up on us. He doesn't throw them away.